This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Um, so thanks so much for listening to another episode of Doing Translational Research. I'm Chris Wildeman. Um, you're uh, almost always host, although sometimes we have better hosts like Maria Fitzpatrick a couple episodes ago. Um, so I'm here today with Peter Enns, who um, doesn't like long introductions. And so I'm just going to say he's some guy that I sometimes work with at Cornell. And then you can look up a proper bio of him. So, Peter, tell me a little bit about your research. Chris, thank you for that introduction. My heart is warmed. I would love to tell you about my research, and I will before I do. Brought some gifts for you. And Oh, whoa, some Carrie. stuff. Yeah, so for those of you listening, these <clears throat> are light-up bouncy balls that say Cornell and the Roper Center on them. So I come bearing gifts. There you go. And so Peter is the executive director of the of the Roper Center. Um, I'm going to put these down because otherwise I will play with them. They <laughs> will make noise and Carrie will get very angry at me. Thank you. You are very welcome. Thank you for having me. Sure. You ready for something ready. about my I research? I'm ready about research now. <laughs> okay. So I would say my, my research focuses on public opinion, and as you, you mentioned, and as the bouncy balls indicate, I'm the director of the Roper Center for Public Opinion Research. But the way I like to incorporate public opinion into my research is investigating broader questions. So how can we understand the rise of mass incarceration more uh, and better in the United States? Or who gets represented? Um, or how do we better understand why voters vote for a particular presidential candidate? So those types of big questions I'm, I'm interested in answering and bringing in um, public opinion data and our understanding from public opinion to advance our understanding of questions like those. Great. So I don't, I don't usually ask people um, to talk too much about earlier work, but in, in this instance, I think it would be nice to hear you just talk for a couple of minutes about your book, because as you know, I mean, you and I are both criminologists of one variety or another. And, you know, one thing that I've heard from so many folks about your book is that it's one of the few things that's really made them sort of rethink their stance on kind of how mass incarceration got rolling. So it, it would just be nice, I think, for folks to hear a little bit about it. Sure. Thank you. So, yeah, in an in, in incarceration nation, which which is my book, what what I think folks who study the criminal legal system in the U.S. and the rise of mass incarceration understand how we treat, how this country and the legal system treats crime and criminals changed. And there were a lot of policy changes that um, we became more, became more punitive, um, how prosecutors approach the criminal justice system. Um, a lot of political decisions shifted what counted as a crime, what carried a pr- uh, prison sentence. But why did those changes occur? That's what I was trying to look at. And, and what the book shows is that public attitudes toward crime and punishment were changing through the 60s, 70s, 80s. And the public, and really all segments of the public, were becoming more punitive. And so the key argument of the book is the criminal justice system was responding to shifting public attitudes. And the, the other, uh, I think an, another important point of the book is I'm able to show that since the mid to late 90s, the public's been moving in a less punitive direction. And I think this really helps understand the calls for criminal justice reform now, 
uh, bipartisan support in state legislatures, but also even at the federal level for criminal justice reform, that the system responded to a public getting more punitive, but we're seeing evidence that the system's responding as public shifts, the public shifts in a less punitive direction. Cool. Great. Thanks for the, thanks for the quick summary. So I, I wonder, you know, in BCTR, a lot of what we do is engage with various different types of community partners. Um, and so I guess it'd be interesting to hear a little bit about how you've engaged with community partners in either doing your work or how you talk to folks who are interested in mass incarceration outside of the academic community. I mean, you could even talk about sort of some of the interactions we had with Forward and and some of the things there. But, you know, how do you how do you think about that work and that engagement? Yeah, that that's a great, great set of questions, because I think and I think this fits with how public attitudes have shifted, that there are a lot of organizations incredibly interested in criminal justice reform now, and, and it's, it's critical. We have the highest incarceration rate in the world in this country. It's, it's important to make changes. So some of, the, um, some of the interactions I've had come with speaking to different groups. So sometimes it's in other universities. Sometimes it's, it's citizen groups. I've, I've talked to uh, audiences where there's, um, you know, folks who have served uh, police officers or even correctional officers to sort of get their reactions. Um, and I was just giving a, a, a talk at Corning Community College, and there was a, a judge in the audience, and so it was very interesting to the, the questions she was asking and, and her reactions to what I was saying. Uh, another, I think, relevant example from right here on Cornell's campus is the Cornell Prison Education Program, which I've been very involved with. And so that's a, not directly related to my research, but through that I've um, taught a Cornell course in a local maximum security prison. And so I think these types of interactions uh, have informed my thinking about the topic, informed my research, and and have, have been very, very productive for me. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, so how, how do you think about sort of the work you do with the prison education program and the work you do on public opinion, like how do, how do those relate to each other? Or, I mean, they could also be totally separate sorts of things, but... Yeah, well, one example, when, so the course I taught in Auburn Correctional Facility was related to education policy, but in, in, in one, so that was the, the focus, but in one particular class session, I sort of talked about my research, and that, of course, included my, my book, Incarceration Nation, and what was especially interesting hearing that perspective from the inmates was my research, I might say, focuses on a macro perspective. So the way a macro economist thinks about shifts in the unemployment rate or the inflation rate, I'm thinking about shifts in public opinion at the national level over time or shifts in public opinion within states. But these conversations, um, whether it's with folks who uh, work in the criminal justice system or have been incarcerated through the criminal justice system, that's the individual level perspective. And that, of course, is what underpins my more aggregate macro level focus. And so those interactions are always informative. I think another way, thinking about Cornell's prison education program and public opinion, so it, it used to be that federal education funding could be used by those in prison to fund college education. That was removed under the Obama administration, they began piloting that back. So 
if you can get a federal loan to pay for college education, that all of a sudden opens up a ton of opportunities for education from inside prison. And so I think that shift back we saw, again, reflects policy following public opinion. And so in terms of thinking about um, what opportunities various community organizations or reform groups have, knowing what public attitudes about reform are and whether the public's moving in a more reform-minded direction is important for the success of these initiatives. Great. Yeah, no, that's that's helpful. Um, the next question I want to ask you, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to tell you that this is what I would like to ask you, and then I'll move on to my real question, is sort of ways in which you think your discipline is misunderstanding sort of crime and punishment in America. Because I, I, the, the research in, in political science on that has always struck me as um, – confusing in some ways, but I'm not going to ask you that question. I'll answer it. I feel like you're setting me up I mean, you're already, you're already tenured. You're well on your way to full. So what damage could you do? (laughs) I could probably do a lot, (laughs) but I'll I'll give you two quick, quick reactions. So from the perspective of political science, as a political scientist, I think within the discipline, and I think this applies more broadly than political science. I don't think we have a great understanding of the determinants of crime and why crime shifts over time, cr- variation across different localities, but, and then back at the individual level too, why some individuals are more likely to commit crime than others. And certainly there's political and social factors that would fall under topics that political scientists study, but I don't think as a discipline we're as far as we need to be toward understanding those relationships to crime. I think the other, I think one of the major strengths of political science is work, and now I'm thinking like uh, Amy Lerman or Veshla Weaver, beginning to understand how interactions with the criminal justice system can influence political behavior and political attitudes. Uh, Michael Leo Owens has done work on this. A lot of political scientists have done terrific work. I sometimes wonder if we're going a little too far in that direction, meaning interactions with police, with criminal justice system are important in individuals' lives. They're salient experiences, but it's not the entire person. Mm -hmm. And so I think figuring out how do we study these salient experiences that individuals can have with the criminal justice system, but not treat it as if that's that individual's only experience or even primary experience. What about other factors, their experiences in school, their, if they have children, their children's experience in school. What about their experience with housing, whether it's trying to get a loan or whether it's in public housing? And so thinking about how to take the insights that these many political scientists have given us and embed that in a broader context of individuals' entire social and political experience. Cool. I like that answer. It, I, I was I was hoping for something a little more fiery, but that's, <laughs> but that's that was a that was good. Yeah, no, I do I do think it's an interesting thing that, especially with folks who do the kind of collateral consequences e sort of stuff that you and I do, it, there is this real pushback against thinking about crime as a real thing and needing to understand sort of the root 
causes of that and how those could be sort of macro level, meso level, or micro level. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, it, it has always struck me as interesting when we think about the effects of criminal justice contact because there, I do think there's this resistance to the idea that there could be like ceiling effects in the sense that like folks have so many different sort of state-sanctioned insults basically that that this one additional one you know like the idea that it may not be that consequential relative to all the other things it it feels sort of in our field like there's like that's not a possibility we should be considering like there's like pushback so yeah no i think that that's really helpful um so so what are kind of the two things that you'd like folks to take away about your work or your more recent work? Um, like what are the what are the two big somebody's not going to read the book, somebody's not going to read the articles. What should they what should they know about Peter? Well, if if I think one thing so much of work by political scientists, criminologists, historians, sociologists have really focused on the influence of political leaders. And so we could think of Nixon, we could think of Ronald Reagan, um, even work on President Johnson, right? So these, usually it's focusing on conservatives, but conservatives or liberals, often presidents leading the, the way toward, a, toward mass incarceration. And if we take that story to its full extent, that, that sort of argument, then it suggests that we're with Donald Trump as president, who's really sort of adopted this law and order rhetoric, that it's a worst case scenario for criminal justice reform. If we take uh, the argument that I put forward in Incarceration Nation, and I think I marshal a, a, a strong amount of evidence behind this, that public opinion has really paved the way since we see that the public has been moving in a less punitive direction, it's an ideal time for criminal justice reform. And so the what I'd like to suggest is by thinking about the influence that public opinion has had historically on the criminal justice system, it really suggests now is an optimal time for reform, where I think if we think of standard narratives and explanations, those who want to see changes in the criminal justice system actually wouldn't think it's a time for action. That's great. So, okay, final final question, not controversial. Um, so based on your research or, or, you know, maybe based on your community work in prisons um, and sort of talking to folks, um, what, what would be sort of the one kind of real world or policy sort of change that you could make? It, it could be in the criminal justice domain. If you say like outlawing, you know, crosswalks or something based on your research, that would be a little weird. But, um, you know, what what sort of change would you like to see? One? This is like when you ask a kid, you get one one wish, what would it be? And then yeah, that's it. The, uh, the smart kids say, I'll wish for 10 more wishes. Can I, what's the equivalent? The here? podcast isn't supposed to be that long. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you can have three, maybe. In the but, spirit but of, the genie, of brevity. The goes away then. In the spirit of brevity. I would say... In terms of criminal justice reform, thinking, uh, th- as we've discussed, the U.S. has the highest incarceration rate in the world. Most of those who are currently incarcerated will 
leave prison, leave jail, come back to society and thinking about constructive and humane ways to integrate individuals. Um, and this has bipartisan support. It's common sense and it's cost effective and it's the right thing to do. And so thinking about changing the parole system, providing support while people are serving time and when they get out, I think that can have huge impacts and and is absolutely something that could happen. And in, in terms of if I could take one, one more step, kind of broader one step back, I think the voting system in the U.S., which leads to a two-party system, has created a lot of challenges for this country, both in terms of its, I think, affected hyper-partisanship and stalemate, in, especially at the federal level. I think that also helps explain why the criminal justice system followed public opinion in such a punitive direction. And so thinking about a proportional representation system, which most democracies around the world actually have, and as a, as a, as a system of representation that could address many of the challenges we see in this country, I think is something that is absolutely worth considering. Great. So what are the other eight? Well, my other eight policy <laughs> changes... <laughs> How much time do you have? <laughs> I don't know. How about, we have two more minutes, according to Carrie. <laughs> do you want more? No, I was just busting your chops. Okay, we could, okay. We could sign off. So this is um, this was Peter Enns, associate professor in the Department of Government um, here at Cornell, and executive director of the Roper Center for Public At- Opinion Research. Um, he also led an institute for the social sciences theme project that I was one of his minions on um, a couple of years ago. So thanks for thanks for joining us, Peter, and uh, this was this was a good time. Thanks, Chris, and thanks, Carrie, for keeping us on schedule. For more information about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.